Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Our speakers are going to be Dr. Binkley up first, and then uh, we'll have Dr. Wynn, and followed by Dr. Stacy. They're each going to talk about various different topics uh, parts of the treatment process for ocular treatments, uh, as well as enucleation is something that will be covered by Dr. Stacy. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce these guys. Our first speaker is Dr. Binkley. And just to give you an idea of Dr. Binkley, she is an assistant professor of vitreoretinal surgery and ocular oncology at the University of Iowa's Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences. Her practice and research focus is in tumors of the posterior segment, uh, posterior meaning the front or the back? The the back. That's the back. The anterior is the front. Uh, But she has uh, focused research in the tumors of the posterior segment with special interest in prognostication in posterior uveal melanoma, radiation retinopathy, and strategies to optimize brachytherapy treatment. Dr. Wynn is from San Diego, California, where he practices at Kaiser Permanente, Permanente? I'm probably saying that wrong, Um, San Diego, and we're so grateful to have him back with us. And then we're going to have Dr. Stacy again, who, like we said, is here from the UWI Institute, and he will be presenting at the end on uh, enucleation. So we're going to go ahead and bring up Dr. Binkley and her slides, and we'll go from there. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me here. Uh, is everybody able to see my slides? Yes, we can see them and we can see you. Great. Okay. Well, I'm going to be talking about how to choose a treatment. And I thought just to kind of start is an overview, kind of our, our overall goals are, of treatment are number one, controlling the tumor in the eye and trying to protect as much vision as possible and keep a person from having pain in the eye from a tumor that's growing very large. But ultimately, the other goal of treating the tumor in the eye is trying to reduce the risk for the spread of the tumor outside of the eye and trying to catch the uh, tumor early, control it, and hopefully help decrease that risk. And I'm going to be talking about a few different options for treating posterior uveal melanoma, meaning melanomas in the back of the eye. Uh, What we would usually refer to as an anterior melanoma would be like an iris melanoma. Um, And the things that I'm going to talk about are observation, plaque brachytherapy, proton beam therapy, which is abbreviated PBT, enucleation, which is eye removal. And then I'm going to touch on a few different experimental treatments, including the ARA Biosciences clinical trial, vitrectomy surgery with laser, and endoresection, which is removing the tumor from inside of the eye with surgery. And again, just to kind of stop and think at the very start, I think when we're trying to think about designing a treatment plan for a patient, there's both tumor factors and individual patient factors that are very important. 
And some of the things that we're thinking about are the tumor size, because some tumors are large. And we know that if we treated the eye with radiation, a person would be very likely to have pain and complications like vision loss related to radiation. And that might be a situation where we might think about moving to eye removal as a first choice. The shape of the tumor is very important as well, because some tumors are kind of irregularly shaped and maybe harder to treat with a plaque. And that might be a situation that we might think about using proton beam uh, radiation instead. And then the location of the tumor is very important as well, because some tumors that are wrapping around the optic nerve can be harder to treat with a plaque or a tumor that is right underneath a person's central vision area may be more likely to, to have vision loss might be a situation where a person might consider a nucleation as a first choice as well. But then there's also patient factors that are very important. So what other medical problems does a person have? Do they have a lot of heart or lung problems, or do they have another cancer that may limit their ability to come back for follow-up or have treatment? And then for a person, how important is it to keep the vision in the eye? Some people say, you know, I've got a job where I really need to try to keep my vision as long as possible, whereas other people say, look, you know, it's just not as important to me, and I'd rather just have the eye out. And then how important to an individual is it to keep keep your eye? Some people say, look, you know, even if my eye doesn't see well, I really want to try to keep my own eye, and that's less important to others. And then also the ability to come back for follow-up visits is important because uh, some of the radiation treatments will require more follow-up visit, visits and potentially treatment of radiation retinopathy over time as opposed to enucleation. So kind of going through these individual options, Observation isn't something that we do all that often, but when would we consider that? So one situation would be if a person comes in and we have found that they have signs that the tumor has already spread to, out of the eye and has gone to the liver, if the tumor is relatively small and isn't causing pain in the eye or vision changes, we may decide that we're just going to watch the primary tumor in the eye at that point and, and really focus on trying to treat the areas where the tumor had spread to the liver and other parts outside of the eye. Another situation would be if a person has a lot of other medical problems limiting treatment, like I've had a couple of very elderly patients who had severe heart and lung problems who said, look, you know, the chance that this tumor is going to spread, you know, on me in the next year and cause a problem, you know, is relatively low, and I would really just rather observe it. And sometimes patient preference as well. For example, I had a patient who only had one eye and he was in his 90s and said, you know, this just isn't worth it to me to lose the vision in my only eye for the, the time that I have remaining and elected to watch it. But the reason we don't usually observe these for most people is that there's a higher risk of the tumor spreading outside of the eye over time without treating the primary tumor. And then also there's a risk for developing vision loss and eye pain as the tumor grows uh, larger inside of the eye. So moving on to different choices for radiation treatment, uh, plaque brachytherapy uh, was, was the original kind of radiation developed for eye melanoma. And the biggest research study that we have for the management of posterior uveal melanoma was called the Collaborative Ocular Melanoma Study, or COMS. And the big finding of this study was that for medium-sized tumors, there was no difference in the risk of the tumor spreading outside of the eye, whether the eye was completely removed or whether a person was treated with plaque brachytherapy. And that's why we feel very comfortable offering radiation as a, as a choice for people who want to try to keep their eye and try to preserve some vision. And 
Uh, this is a schematic showing uh, an I-125 plaque. Iodine-125 is the name of the radioactive isotope that we use most commonly in the United States in these, these plaques because it's easily accessible and it has a half-life that works well for what we need to do for these. But you may read, and especially in Europe, um, there are other isotopes like palladium and ruthenium that can be used as well. Um, but the plaque has a gold shell that blocks the radiation from going back to the brain. And then there's a, a plastic material inside of that gold shell that these radioactive seeds are inserted into. And then the plaque is sewn on top of the white of the eye on top of the area where the tumor is and is designed to give a, a dose, a specific dose of radiation to the very uh, tip of a person's tumor. And this is a figure just showing a little bit better, a plaque that's been disassembled with the different parts. This is that gold shell, and there's these eyelets, which are the little uh, spaces where we put the stitches through to hold the plaque onto the eye. This is the silastic carrier that the seeds are placed into, and then this is the plaque after it's been assembled, uh, and this is what's sewn onto the eye. And here are just some other examples of different styles of plaques. There's plaques that have notches and different shapes to fit around the optic nerve or to fit specific types of tumors. And these are a couple examples of plaques that are sewn onto the eye uh, at the time of surgery. So in general, you know, what are the kind of pros and cons that we're thinking about with plaque? So it has excellent local tumor control for medium-sized tumors, but it's a little less effective for large-sized tumors. People are able to keep vision uh, initially uh, more so than with a nucleation, but people do lose vision over time related to radiation damage to the retina and the optic nerve. We're able to do a pretty good job localizing these plaques with ultrasound and getting the plaque lined up in the operating room on top of the tumor, but it is harder for tumors that are next to the optic nerve and for tumors with an irregular shape. People tend to have a little less severe dry eye and cataract progression compared to proton beam therapy, but those are still side effects that happen with a plaque as well. There's a little higher risk of having double vision with the plaque because we oftentimes have to move an eye muscle around to get the plaque to sit onto the eye, and then we sew that back into place at the time that we remove the plaque. An advantage of plaque is that it's usually a treatment in one continuous time period where we put the plaque onto the eye and the plaque stays there for usually about three to five days and then it's removed. But it does require more follow-up trips back over time uh, compared to a nucleation. Proton beam therapy is another way that we have of delivering radiation to tumors. And this is done with a, a large machine called a linear accelerator. And this technique uses what's called collimated radiation, so radiation that is shined in, in parallel beams uniformly at the tumor with a goal of trying to decrease some of the kind of lateral spread and damage to the other structures around the tumor. And this is an example where uh, a person who has proton beam therapy has little metal clips sewn onto the white of the eye in a surgery in the area overlying the tumor. And then after you're healed up from that, comes back, and then this machine is used to shine the radiation at those markers in the area of the tumor over a series of several days. And again, kind of comparing and contrasting the kind of pros and cons that we think about with this, similar to a plaque, it has excellent local tumor control for, for smaller and medium-sized tumors, but a little lower success rate for large tumors. People are able to keep vision initially more so than with a nucleation, but similar to a plaque, will develop radiation, retinopathy, and optic neuropathy over time that can limit vision. 
there's a little less risk of having double vision compared to a plaque because we usually aren't having to move eye muscles around for proton beam. There's a little higher risk of having uh, cataract progression and dry eye because the radiation travels through those front structures of the eye. But proton beam can be very helpful for tumors that have irregular shapes and tumors that wrap around the optic nerve that would be harder to treat with a plaque. Not all centers have proton beam therapy as an option, so sometimes it can require more travel. But an advantage of it is when the clips are placed onto the eye to localize the tumor, that's a single surgery. A person has to come back then for the radiation treatment, and compared to a nucleation, it is more uh, follow-up visits over time. And then a nucleation or eye removal was the only treatment that we had available prior to the brachytherapy techniques. And we still often use this for large tumors and tumors that are in locations that will result in significant vision loss and also patient preference. Some people say, look, you know, I would just rather have this out and have it be over and done with. Um, and that's an important consideration as well. And this is a person who's had an enucleation just to show when the eye is removed, there's an implant placed into the eye socket, and then the coverings of the eye are sewn in place on top of that. And then uh, once that has healed, a person has a prosthesis made, which is uh, designed to look just like a person's other eye. And you can see in general, this has really good cosmetic results that it can almost be hard sometimes just looking at a person to tell uh, which eye is the, has the prosthesis in place. So for enucleation, some of the positives are that there's better, better local tumor control for large tumors and tumors that have extended outside of the sclera of the eye into the eye socket, but a downside is that a person loses their vision in the eye right away. There's no risk of double vision, but it can be hard to, to adjust to losing your vision suddenly. People usually have very good cosmetic results once they're healed from this, but you can rarely have an implant infection where the implant needs to be removed and the person uh, treated with antibiotics. An advantage of it is that there's fewer follow-up visits compared to plaque brachytherapy or proton beam therapy, but it is hard in a situation where a person has limited vision in their other eye. And then just closing to kind of touch on a few experimental treatments, I'm going to talk about the Aurobiosciences trial, vitrectomy with laser, and endoresection. So uh, the Aurobiosciences clinical trial is a study of a light-activated medicine called Belsar. And this medicine is a virus-like particle, meaning it has receptors on the surface that are able to bind to receptors on the surface of the tumor. And then there's a medication inside the little structure uh, that's able to be activated with a light. And uh, so a person has an injection of this medicine either into or around the eye, and then they come back and this light is shined at the, the tumor in the area where the medicine has been targeted to try to activate it with the goal of trying to decrease the damage to the other structures of the eye around the tumor. And they're going to be starting a worldwide uh, phase three trial this year, um, injecting the medicine into what's called the suprachoroidal space, which is the space in between the sclera, the wide of the eye, and the retina into the layer where most of these tumors are actually located in the, in the, uh, right above the choroid. And they're going to be studying patients with small tumors with the goal of trying to kill the tumor with less vision loss compared to radiation or eye removal. So that will be very exciting to see the results of that study over time. Vitrectomy with endolaser for small tumors is another technique that's been tried. 
Um, there was a study of 226 patients with small tumors treated this way that had a 98% local tumor control rate with better than 2040 vision and 80% of people. And with this procedure, um, a vitrectomy surgery is the name for a surgery where we go into the eye and remove the vitreous jelly that fills the eye and then use a laser probe directly into the eye to try to laser the tumor to kill the tumor cells. This was obviously a small study, and one of the challenges has been that when they tried to treat tumors just with laser in the past, it only had about a 60% success rate. And so it will be important to follow these patients over time and make sure there weren't more late failures, but this at least seems like a promising method uh, for some, some tumors that are smaller in size. And then endoresection is a treatment that's performed in some centers a lot uh, more commonly in Europe compared to the United States. But this is a figure showing that vitrectomy surgery where the vitreous gel is being removed. And then uh, people have gone in and actually tried to cut out part of the tumor um, using this technique with the goal of trying to decrease the risk for vision loss. The downside is that there's also damage to the normal structures of the eye that happens at that time, and there's also a very high risk for bleeding with this procedure. We don't have a lot of good long-term studies to show that it decreases the risk of tumor spreading, and there's a theoretical chance of spreading some tumor cells out of the eye with this approach, so it's just something else uh, to be aware of. So in summary, uh, the treatment choice for uveal melanoma is individualized and depends upon the specific features of a person's tumor and their preferences. Plaque brachytherapy, proton beam therapy, and enucleation all have a very good chance of controlling the primary tumor, and hopefully we're going to have new treatments in the future that are able to help to kill the primary tumor while keeping more vision for people. Thank you, Dr. Binkley. Great work. Um, I'll just mention, I didn't say this before, Dr. Binkley and I went to medical school together. That's how we met. Um, I will be third, actually, so the yeah, next so one is Dr. Chen, or no, Dr. Dr. Wynn, not Dr. Chen. Did you already introduce him? Yes, I did. Okay. Go ahead, Dr. Wynn. Thank you, good morning, everybody. Let me pull up my slides here. Can everybody see my slides okay? Yes. Cool. All right. Thank you, Dr. Stacy, and the rest of the you know, organizations for inviting me here today. My name is Min Nguyen, and I'm a cornea specialist in Southern California. Uh, the title of my talk today is Dry Eye Disease After Radiations. And to make it more exciting and to capture a bigger picture, I'm going to call it the eye surface disease after radiations. Let me do something here. Okay. I have no financial disclosure or conflict of interest. So I have the highest respect for patients with choroidal melanoma, you know, who went through radiation because the hardest part is already behind you. The last thing I want you to worry about is the eye discomfort from eye surface disease or dry eye because these could be chronic and could, you know, be bothering you every single day. This is why I'm here today to tell you about all the reasons your eyes feel uncomfortable and dry and how to treat each of them. The symptoms of the eye surface disease are the dryness, foreign body sensations, 
redness, vision, vision change. And in order to treat these conditions effectively, we need to understand why they happen in the first place. So let me take you through each of the scenario. Here I present to you the etiologies of the tri-eyes and eye surface disease after radiation. Please do not worry because I will try to explain each of them and tell you how to treat them. The first reason is not enough tears. Second is tears evaporate too quickly. Then we have surface toxicity from artificial tears. This can be confusing, but I will tell you, I will explain to you. And we have surface toxicity from radiations, surface toxicity from glaucoma drops. So let's go through each of them. The first reason is not enough tears. The picture on the right shows you the uh, lacrimal glands. And this is the glands that produce your natural tears to lubricate the surface of the eye. The tears also have the intrinsic mechanism to defend your eye from having, you know, common uh, against common infectious organism. And the excessive tears will be you know, drain into this duct inside your nose, and this is why you can taste the eye drops. When you have radiations, the radiations will likely injure this um, lacrimal gland right here. The gland will reduce very little tears or no tears at all. And when you understand this deficit, it becomes very easy to treat this process. And if there's only one thing you remember from this lecture, I want you to remember to only use preservative-free artificial tears as often as you can, because these tears has no preservative in them, and you can use it as much as you want. If the tears has preservative in them, you can have, you know, even surface toxicity from these drops. And to make it less confusing and easy to remember, the brand that my patients love and I recommend to them is Refresh Plus. Remember the word plus after refresh because this version does not have preservatives. It comes in small vials, um, and each vial can be good for four to five applications. Just snap the top of the vial, apply the drop, and then you know put the cap back on and put it in your pocket. It can be good for four to five applications in one day. Um, a good place to get these drops is Costco. I think it's about $25 for 100 vials, and this is where most of my patients get their refresh plus. The patient without the refresh without plus is in a bigger bottle and can be used for weeks or even months, but that has preservatives and can damage the eye surface even more. Also, definitely do not use any eye drop that is advertised to treat eye redness because these drops tend to make your eye worse upon stopping them. Your eyes have glands that produce tears. They also have the training system, like I talked before, uh, in order to train the tears away. So now the treatment option is to block the training process. Your eye doctors can play a silicone plug in the training system to keep the tears, your tears or the artificial tears to stay on your eye surface longer. Usually it's best to employ both treatments, frequent artificial tears and plugs. And the only thing about the plug is that it could dislodge very easily. If this is the case, your doctors can burn off the entrance of the training system or cauterize this for more permanent options. It sounds scary, but patients are usually happier after this simple and painless procedure. And once everything is more stable, your ophthalmologist can refer you to a contact lens specialist or something called a lens. 
This is a special hard contact lens that does not only sit on your cornea, the clear part of your eye, but also part of the white area of your eye. It is special because it can keep the fluid in the small pocket between the contact lens and your cornea and keep it lubricated throughout the day. Patients may have some trouble putting this lens on for the first couple of weeks, but once they get the hang of it, they absolutely love it. One thing I must warn you about this lens or any contact lens in general is that you never shower, swim, or sleep in these contact lenses. Not in the pool, not in the river. And do not wash these contact lens with tap water. Because when your contact lens meet the tap water, you can have a very serious parasitic infections of your cornea. So no tap water and contact lens. Uh, the second reason for dry eyes and eye surface disease is tears evaporations. Your tears has two main components, the thin part and the thick part. The thin part is just liquid produced by the lacrimal glands that I explained to you in the previous slides. The thick part is produced by these tiny glands in your eyelids. The truth is your tears need both components for your eye to be healthy. Radiations can injure these glands as well. And with less substance, with less thick substance, your natural tears may evaporate too quickly. In order, in order to make the remaining glands work for you, please do warm compress of your eyelids two to three times a day. You can do this by using a warm and wet towel putting it over your closed eyes for 10 minutes, two times every day. Reheat the towel in the microwave if it cools down. You can also purchase this special heated eye mask for this, a brand that my patients love is called the Prudent Mask. So I put it here for you. The third reason is surface toxicity from artificial tears. Notice that I don't put the word preserve free in front of this. It's because you know the, the artificial tears that have preserved um, can cause damage to the eye surface as well. And these, these are, you know, preservative artificial tears come into bottle. So don't, you know, don't use the artificial tears that come into bottle or any, you know, uh, tears that is advertised to make your eye less red. I was very specific with my patients about which brand of artificial tears to use, not only because I don't want my patients to go to the pharmacy and get confused by millions of brands of tears in the aisles, but also because I want them to avoid something like this. So this year, starting in May, they you know, started reporting multiple cases of blindness and death from artificial tears. This eye drop has preserved free artificial tears, but in a bottle, and it's sold on Amazon. And you know, as you can see here, the CDC has reported a lot of it blindness as well as death from the infections from this eye drop. So this is why I, I wanted to be specific to my patients about which artificial tears I want them to use so they can be less confused. But if you have any questions about any other artificial tears or brands, please ask your eyes doctor first before using them. The fourth reason is surface toxicity from radiations. Radiations could also injure special populations of cells of your eyes. This is called limbosome cell, and they, um, they you know, populate in the border of the clear part of your eye or your cornea, and radiations can cause limbosome cell deficiency. And once this happens, the eye surface is less healthy because the surface is not provided with newer, more healthy cells frequently from this population of cells. And your eye doctors will diagnose this and refer you to a cornea specialist for treatment options. 
However, this is rare, so please do not worry about it too much. And as Dr. Bowen and Dr. Blinkley uh, has elucidated before, this, the eyes may, after radiation, may develop radiations, retinopathy, and then glaucoma due to the growth of abnormal blood vessels. In this case, the eye pressure will increase slowly, and your doctors may put you on several glaucoma eye drops to reduce the eye pressure. It's likely that these eye drops contain preservatives. Some patients that I know need three types of glaucoma eye drops every day, each two to three times a day. And that will make them out of preservatives given to the eyes very significant throughout the day, 10 to even 15 times a day. When patients have surface eye problem, this is important that the eye doctors recognize this problem and hopefully switch them to preservative-free glaucoma eye drops. Please bring this up to your eye doctors as well. If you feel that your eyes start to get dry or red or uncomfortable and you are using too many glaucoma eye drops. And one last thing I want to tell everybody, not everything is dry eyes or eye surface disease. It's okay for you to buy a Refresh Plus to lubricate your eyes when you feel dry. But if your eyes start to get blurry or you have pain and start to have discharge, chances are that you have a more serious problem. It could be an infections or your retina has started to show sign of radiations, retinopathy, or your pressure has become too high. So please call your doctors. We are always here for you and we are on this journey together. So in summary, eye surface disease, especially dry eye, is common after radiations. Please use trusted preservative-free artificial tears. The brand I recommend is Refresh Plus to lubricate the eyes as much as you want. But the other causes of eye surface disease are evaporative tears, stem cell deficiency, preservative-free, preservatives in glaucoma drops, and these require more specialized treatment. And please call your ophthalmologist if symptoms persist or worsen. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Wynn. We appreciate it. And I'm sure most of us can relate to that. Uh, we will take some questions towards the end after Dr. Stacy presents on nucleation. Um, and I think that we'll be able to have just about five or so minutes for questions. So keep those in mind, write those down. Dr. Stacy. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Wynn has a unique skill set. Uh, he is, uh, has specific training and expertise in both ocular oncology and the cornea. Uh, and so um, I really appreciate him coming here and sharing some of his wisdom with us. I, I'm assuming that there might be a lot of questions for him uh, because that is one of the most common things I get questions about is after radiation, how to deal with the dry, dry eyes. So I will be brief in my comments here. I just wanted to touch briefly on eye removal surgery. Um, the next set of um, uh, discussions is going to be from uh, one of our uh, ocularists here in town, a team of ocularists. Uh, and so they're going to talk to you about uh, what it looks like to get a prosthetic made and what does that journey entail. And they may touch on eye removal surgery as well. So at the risk of hearing this many times, it is something that I deal with in clinic a lot. And so um, I just wanted to, to talk about some of the things that I've seen in patients that I think would be helpful. Um, in general, why does an eye need to be removed? Well, there's really two reasons why an eye might need to be removed. Initially, sometimes the tumor is too large for radiation. Um, 
even if we could get radiation into a very large tumor, the amount of damage done to the eye would be really devastating and would just leave you with um, an eye that doesn't hold its shape and is terribly painful and gives you no vision. In those situations, your physician may have at the onset recommended eye removal surgery. However, there are other reasons why you might need to have an eye removed. Many patients have radiation, and everybody responds a little bit differently to radiation, and we just don't know how it's going to respond. Sometimes the eye just starts to shut down because of the side effects of radiation, and it becomes blind, and it becomes painful. And if you have an eye that's giving you nothing good, no good vision, and it's causing you pain, then there's not much of a reason to leave it in. Also, those eyes usually don't look very normal, and a prosthetic will look more normal. Um, in those situations, it's never really an emergency to take the eye out, and patients are thinking about this decision a lot over months, sometimes years, as they're dealing with pain that's slowly getting worse. Um, so in those situations, we often talk about what eye removal surgery is and what it isn't. Um, I talked about this already. Um, talking about what it is and what it isn't. Hollywood, unfortunately, has given us an idea of what eye removal surgery is that is bogus, right? In Pirates of the Caribbean, they see this big ball pop out of the eye, and we all think that there's going to be a big hole in the face and a big ball that comes in and out, which is just not the case. So I just wanted to answer some of the questions that I get frequently. When somebody undergoes eye removal surgery, these are the questions that I hear a lot. Will it hurt? Um, honestly, and um, I'm not an expert, there are many experts in the room who would probably be happy to talk to you. Um, it is not as debilitating as it sounds. Of course, it's a surgery and it's not gonna feel great for a few days after surgery, but the large majority of patients do very well. And in the situations where the eye is already painful, it is not uncommon for me to have patients come in and say, Doc, as soon as the eye was out, I felt better. Even that day, as soon as the eye was out, I felt better. Um, so does it hurt? Sure, it's, it's a surgery. You're going to feel uh, some pain, but uh, mostly it's going gonna, it's gonna to be relieving after a few days. Will you have to stay in the hospital? Probably not. I don't know of anybody in this country admitting patients to the hospital after eye removal surgery, other than young children. When we remove it in children, we do bring them into the hospital. Um, how long will I be out of work? That's a tough question that everybody asks, and it really kind of depends on you. Um, even the day after surgery, if you needed to go back to work, you probably could, though most patients take a significant amount of time off. I would say a good portion of our patients end up taking about a month off because from the time of surgery until they can get a fitted prosthesis is about four to six weeks, and most of them want to go back to work with a prosthesis. But you could put a patch on, um, or even without a patch, you could, you could work if you needed to. Um, will I scare my children and grandchildren? As we'll talk about the surgical aspect of this, I said I would take five minutes, so I'm going to take more. I'll be quick. Um, after eye removal surgery, even before you have your prosthesis, your eyelid is just droopy. It's not that there's a big hole in your face or, or anything other than just droopy. They'll say, what's wrong with your eye? But it's just going to look like this and it'll be a little bit bruised for a few weeks. Um, I can't do contact lenses. How am I going to manage a prosthetic? Um, 
I can't do contact lenses either, and I would worry about this myself, but I don't, I don't think I have any patients that say they have trouble taking their prosthetic in and out, and as we'll hear from our ocularists. Speaking as someone who used to wear contacts from about high school for the rest of my life until I got diagnosed, a prosthesis feels extremely different than contacts. It's like night and day, like totally different things. Because you don't have the eye in there. To and, irritate it and the anymore. other thing is, depending on your prosthesis, you may not actually take it in and out. You may just leave it, and your doctor is the only one who takes it out, or the ocularist. Yeah, and unfortunately, Todd Cranmore's here just 10 feet away from me, but I'm going to pretend like he's not, and I'm going to tell you guys what I tell everybody, which is the ocularist will tell you that you need to take it in and out occasionally to clean it, but most patients don't. They just leave it in, and they're all pretty happy. <laughs> Sorry, Todd. Um, the next question is, is the cancer gone? Um, that's a deep question. Is the cancer gone from inside of the eye? Sure. Is it gone from the eye socket? Most likely, but I couldn't guarantee that. Is it gone from the body? I definitely can't guarantee that. Um, that's not the reason we remove the eye. Um, if eye removal surgery gave us a better risk of spread to the rest of the body than radiation, we would just remove everybody's eye when they walked in our clinic, but it doesn't. They're exactly the same. So eye removal surgery doesn't actually change the risk to the rest of the body. Um, I just want to show these schematics really quick. The eyeball, I don't have a pointer. Uh, you do, actually. If you use the little, um, here, this one might be the one you need. It's a little flasher thing. It'll oh, wow. push cool. the little tree at the bottom. OK. Fancy. So um, when we remove an eye, we only remove the eye. We don't remove anything else in the eye socket. The eye muscles that all attach to the eye and move the eye around, they stay in place. The skin of the eye, which is called the conjunctiva, it stays in place too. In fact, the only thing, if you were looking at my eye, the only thing that is actually eyeball that you can see is the iris. That is the only thing when you're looking at me that is actually eyeball. So when I remove the eyeball, the only thing that's going to be gone is the iris, which is the colored part of the eye, and the pupil. After we remove the eye, we put the skin of the eye on top of an implant. So we put an implant into the eye socket the skin of the eye stays in its same configuration, but now covers the eye implant. And then you have a prosthesis that fits on top. So I just wanted to make sure everybody knew that when you remove an eye, there's not a hole in the eye. In fact, the contour is almost exactly the same as the other side, as the normal eye. And the only thing that's different is you don't see the iris anymore. And the only thing you take in and out is really a glorified contact lens. It's a big, painted contact lens. It's not a big thing like they do in, in the Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, and the, the last thing I want to say is this. Um, oftentimes, this is um, a dilemma that patients are worried about and thinking about a lot. Um, I just want to tell you what our patients say. I have never, in my memory, I cannot think of a patient who has told me that they regret removing the eye. What I hear much more often is after a patient has had the eye removed, when they've been dealing with pain and low vision for a long time, they'll often come and they'll say, you know, Dr. Stacy, 
I kind of wish I would have just done it sooner because it's freedom. It's been freedom for me. Um, and so I don't pretend to know what it's like because I've never had to make that decision about removing an eye. But if that decision ever comes to you, I just want you to know what our patients say, which is they do not regret it. And it's, it's a breath of freedom to them. And I'll leave you with that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Stacy, and also Dr. Wynn and Dr. Binkley. Okay, we have about five or so minutes for questions. Um, I did go ahead and write down at least one that I had thought of, but if you guys have any questions, um, I guess I don't see, oh, Lauren's in the other room. That's okay. Uh, Carrie, if you see any questions waving around, will you grab, grab those? Um, and then let me know if you have any online as well. So the question that I had for, I think it was Dr. Wynn, um, if we can bring him back up on screen as well as Dr. Binkley. Um, the first question that I have is, you're talking a lot about eye drops, and I know you talked a lot about you know sterile eye drops and things like that. So is there a proper way to insert eye drops in your eye? Because I see patients, I see friends, family, they put their eye drops in all in very different ways. And I'm just curious if there's a method that is safer, more sterile, you know, those kinds of things. Very good questions because I think this year I started, you know, putting eye drops into my own eyes as well because of allergies. And I have not figured out a good way without laying down and put eye drops in the corner of your eye while you close your eye and then blink it in. I think that's the most, you know, uh, act, like precise way to put eye drops into your eye. Okay. And then I guess we'll probably address this with Dr. Cranmore later, um, but we'll talk about maybe the difference for that when you have a prosthesis, because it is a little different, <laughs> I think. Um, does anyone else have any other questions for any of the three doctors up here? I'm not seeing a paper, but, um, well, I think just as far as, yeah, if you want to pose a question that would work. I will. I will pose a question to Dr. Binkley. Um, Dr. Binkley, if you had a small, medium-sized melanoma in the, not in the far back, but in the middle of the back, what we would call the equator, how would you decide between different forms of radiation, the laser, the clinical trial, and eye removal surgery? What, what are the factors that play into your decision and recommendation the most? I think that's a really good question. I, I think, you know, I mean, I think the biggest thing for me is usually having a discussion with the patient, um, because I guess I don't want to assume that like what I would necessarily do for my own eye, you know, I mean, I've got a job where, you know, I mean, to do surgery and everything, I've really got to have, you know, good kind of both eyes working together. And for me personally, what I might do is very different from some of my patients who are, say, you know, uh, you know, a farmer who's traveling, you know, seven hours to come see me, even for a smaller size tumor like that, I've seen people decide that they would just prefer to have their eye out in that case, which I think is very reasonable in, in some situations. And so I think the, the biggest thing I guess I try to do is go over what are all of the different options. I think travel is sometimes an issue, uh, particularly in a rural state like where I am, because, um, you know, some people may just say, hey, look, I, I'm just not interested in having to travel back and forth for a clinical trial, because that tends to be a lot more trips um, to a center for study visits, whereas other people may say, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm closer to the city, I'd really like to do that. Uh, I think that's an important variable for, for people as well. And I think with proton beam as well. It's been very nice to have Dr. Bowen um, being able to offer uh, proton beam in Chicago, which is a lot closer to where I am, but that had also been a barrier for people for a while, just that there aren't as many centers 
um, in the Midwest that had proton beam radiation available as an option. And so some people would say, hey, look, you know, I've got family in Boston and it's just easier for me to go out there and stay with them for a week. I'd rather do that than be in the hospital or, you know, with the plaque. Um, whereas other people said, you know, look, I'd rather just stay close to home and, and, and treat this with a plaque. So I guess I, I tend to have more of the discussion with the patient and, and I want the person to be able to make a decision for what is going to be best for them and, and how important it is to keep their vision over time and how well they're going to be able to come back for, for follow-up visits. That's such a good point. I did think of another question for you, Dr. Wynn. Uh, for dry eyes, is there a benefit to potentially using things like a humidifier at night to help with kind of just moisture in the air when you're sleeping? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, some patients even put like something called like a humidifier chamber on top of the eye to keep the surface uh, wet, you know, throughout, throughout the night. Oh, I love that. I like, that's one of the things I think we think about humidifiers mostly for when you have a cold, but I think they can definitely help, especially if you're like me and you sleep with your eyes open. <laughs> um, no, that's kind of a joke. It's just kind of a slight crack. Dr. Binkley, for the Aura Biosciences clinical trial, did you happen to say the trial number? And if, if not, could you say it again? Uh, I don't think I said the trial number. I don't know if I know it offhand. I okay. can certainly try to look it up. No, it's okay. If you can, if you don't find it immediately, I think that... Okay. We have some experts here in the room. Yes. Aura is here. Thank you for being here. And we're all very excited about this upcoming trial. So. Yes. Yeah, so I guess if you want to know the specific trial number, or if... I, I guess this is, this is the hard thing, right? That this Aura trial that is specific to treatment, it's not really going to benefit maybe us if we've already had our eyes treated. But what it will help and who it will help are the patients that you're going to come across in Facebook groups, the people that are con contacting you saying, hey, I just got diagnosed or my doctor said I might have ocular melanoma. These are the patients that we want them to be aware of this. And so you guys are kind of our little army of being able to help spread the word about this trial outside of the doctors who they're going to have access to this trial through their centers. So just keep that in mind as you're talking to newly diagnosed patients and are, they're weighing their treatment options so that this becomes one of those options for as many people as possible. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you both uh, for being here virtually. Dr. Binkley, Dr. Wynn, we're so appreciative of you. Thank you, Dr. Stacy. And we're going to go ahead and move on to our break. So we will thank our speakers and see you guys next time. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, Leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.